0: Good evening, as I mentioned earlier, I'm John Wells, I'm one of the lay elders here at Grace, and it's just a special honor and privilege to be up here tonight. Thank you for hearing me. In case you are new or visiting with us this evening, we are working our way through a summer sermon series in the Psalms. Our series is focused on the Psalms of David, and they've really served as a window into the raw, unfiltered dialogue between David and David. A man that we know is made after God's own heart and His heavenly Father. This marks our sixth week, which I think is the halfway point. As an aside, before we get into tonight's text, I just want to pause for a minute and reflect on the book, on the Book of Psalms in its inter- entirety. In particular, I want to acknowledge that some of you might be like me and find the Psalms incredibly challenging. As a background on me, I work for a large healthcare company based here in town, but I'm not a medical professional. I work in finance. My wife likes to make fun of this, but I have a knack for spreadsheets. I'm very pragmatic, black and white. So a book of poetry full of metaphors and imagery is really hard for me. And I'm guessing it might be for a few of you as well. Some of you might be wishing we were back in Philippians or 1 Peter. Peter. Rather than talking about the second metaphor in the third movement of a poem. And if this is you, I would encourage you to press on. The prayers and songs that make up the book of Psalms do not stand alone in Old Testament times, but are meant to serve as your very voice and words when we do not know what to say to our Lord. So tonight, and over the rest of the sermon series, let the words of these psalms meditate in your heart and mind. Take the time to pause and reflect on them. Spend a week meditating on a single psalm. Create the space for the Lord to use these psalms to reveal himself to you. Our psalm tonight is Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a psalm of thanksgiving that catalogs God's act of provision, not just to David, but to all of God's children. So please listen to God's word. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit be present amongst us tonight. Lord, my words are imperfect. I ask that you take these words that I prepared and transform them. Touch our hearts and minds with the very message you have in store for us this evening. Build us up and teach us to walk in your ways. Reveal to us the blessings and provisions you have made available to us through the work of Jesus on the cross. In whose name I pray, amen. Haven't we been blessed this summer to hear the Lord speak so powerfully? For the words of Busby and Jason and BK and Hal and Colburn. As I sat down to prepare for this sermon, I felt a lot of pressure to keep up the good work. They are hard acts to follow. I even started to wonder where I could go with my sermon opening that would keep your interest. As a reminder, Jason taught us about the Giddith, our new favorite instrument. BK talked about the power of music in our lives, and his particular love of Bob Marley. Hal talked about early American history, and Colburn shared about his early years of ministry, leading a college small group. So in an effort to be different and original, I'm going to dip into pop culture. (laughs) And I'm going to reference a movie, and it's a risky reference, because I'm going to take you back to 1991. And I realized that a lot of people in this church were not born then, so bear with me. In June 1991, City Slickers, starring Billy Crystal, hit the box office. And if you were not familiar with City Slickers, you should be. Billy Crystal was at peak stardom. The movie grossed $180 million, it won an Oscar. My parents saw it, and my parents never watched movies. It was a big deal in the Wells household. The movie's about three men, Mitch, who's played by Billy Crystal, Phil and Ed, and they live in New York City, and they're in their late 30s, early 40s. And all three have awoken to a phase of life where they have a deep desire for something more. So what did they do? Really, the only logical thing. They book a two-week trip to a dude ranch to drive cattle from New Mexico to Colorado and to find the meaning of life. The cattle drive is led by a leathery-skinned, cigarette-smoking cowboy named Curly, And Curly claims to have found the secret to life. He holds up his finger. He's like, this is the secret to life. And he just despises the New Yorkers who can't even ride a horse. Now, this is a spoiler alert, but the movie's 30 years old, so you've had your chance. During the cattle drive, Curly dies. Mitch, Phil, and Ed are faced with leading the cattle themselves through the wilderness with zero cowboy know-how. And in one of the final scenes of the movie, they're about to bring the cattle down into the valley of their destination. It's pouring rain, and they have to cross this deep, dangerous, swift river. They make it across, and then they hear a young calf crying out in the middle of the river. It's being swept away. And then we see Mitch riding his horse along the bank, and somehow manages to toss a rope and lasso the calf and saves its life. But Mitch is so excited that he was able to lasso the calf, he forgets to watch where his horse is going and falls into the river. And he gets swept away. And then you see Phil and Ed slide headfirst down a muddy embankment to save Mitch and the calf at the last minute. The scene's very dramatic. It's very funny. It's also the image of a man who's willing to do anything to protect his flock. But while there's shepherd imagery in this scene, it is not the picture that's painted in Psalm 23. You see, the Lord is everything that Mitch is not. City Slickers is about a man who doesn't know what he's doing, who saves a calf literally with dumb luck, whose first reaction is to be so impressed with himself that he forgets what he's doing. Tonight, through our study of Psalm 23, we'll learn how the Lord is our true and perfect shepherd. He's our ultimate provider who intimately knows each and every one of his flock. Darkness is defeated by his very presence. With him we find protection, rest, and restoration. And he's in total and perfect control. As a quick reminder, when we study the Psalms, it's important to, to follow both the movement of the Psalm and its metaphors. And that's really going to outline our, the sermon for this evening. Particular, we're going to focus on Psalm 23's two key metaphors. The first that the Lord is our shepherd, and the second that the Lord is our host. And through the movement of the psalm, we're going to see a very distinct story arc. And that's arc with a sea, not the boat. And this arc is important because it mimics our Christian life. It also frames out our key takeaway for tonight. So if you don't hear anything else, please hear these three bullets. The Lord's promise and provision is greater than we can imagine. But we are sinners, covered in a veil of darkness, unable to find our way. And our Lord, the Lord, meets us in that very place and redeems us. And another spoiler alert for you He does that through the person and work of Jesus. So let's get into it. Verse 1 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here in the opening of the psalm, we find David's first metaphor, that the Lord is our shepherd. And over the next few verses, David paints this picture of the Lord tending his flock by leading them, finding them water and a place to rest, protecting them and restoring them. To fully grasp the significance of David's metaphor, it's important to remember that David was intimately familiar with the responsibilities of a shepherd, as were the readers of this psalm. Sheep were a central part of the Israeli economy. They provided food and wool, and they were very important within the Hebrew sacrificial system. As a result, shepherding was a very common profession. David himself was a shepherd for a period of time. This also means that David fully understood the nature of sheep and what it means to illustrate himself as a sheep in this psalm. You see, sheep are unintelligent animals, They are entirely dependent on the shepherd for food, for water, for protection. A sheep can be standing alone by itself, right over here, within eyesight of a crowd of sheep, its flock, and still not be able to find its way back to the group. Entirely dependent on the shepherd. And so close is the bond between the shepherd and its sheep that a sheep can be in a group of other sheep in a room like this, and the shepherd can just speak out in a normal tone of voice. And the sheep will follow the shepherd's simple call. Now, knowing this, let's think about this metaphor some more. David is saying that he, that we, are unable to do anything, not even the simplest task, without the help of our Lord, the shepherd. David is also saying that our Lord is one who cares for us, who knows us, and has every detail of our lives covered. We can lean on him for anything, for everything, for nourishment, for comfort, peace, healing, companionship. And we can rest in the knowledge that he will not forsake us. He is steadfast in his care for us, And like a good shepherd, the Lord teaches, or the Lord tends to each and every one of us, his flock. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a commentary that referenced a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, and it was written, the book was written by an individual named Philip Keller. I'm going to read an excerpt from this commentary. Philip Keller writes that sheep do not lie down easily and will not unless four conditions are met. Because they are timid, they will not lie down if they are afraid. Because they are social animals, they will not lie down if there's friction among the sheep. If flies or parasites trouble them, they will not lie down. Finally, if the sheep are anxious about food or hungry, they will not lie down. Rest comes because the shepherd has dealt with fear, friction, flies, and famine. And don't those four things sum up our day-to-day sinful and fallen state? We routinely find ourselves in a place of fear or anxiety, friction with others, annoyed by the flies, the little troubles of this world, and seeking nourishment for our souls. It is in this humanity that the Lord meets us and takes on our trouble. Ultimately, this metaphor highlights the care and compassion of the Lord and our dependence on him to meet our needs. So with that framework in mind, let's continue on and look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. These three verses make up the first movement of the psalm. And this movement serves to establish the Lord as our perfect shepherd. In these verses, David describes the Lord's provision in his life. And to the reader, it should serve as a signpost to the ideal version of a shepherd. David the sheep has been provided food, water, a place of rest, guidance, and restoration. And these verses are rich with imagery denoting blessing Green pastures, still waters, restoration. In fact, I want you to close your eyes and listen to me read these words again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What is the image that's in your head right now? Isn't it beautiful? I see a perfect pastureland land with long, lush grass. Maybe a big tree next to the quiet stream. I have a feeling of peace. Nature is at peace. My soul is at peace. And then I see our Lord there, walking with me. Perfect companionship, complete dependence on him. But this picture that comes to my mind is just a feeble attempt to overcome my fallen state. To imagine the Garden of Eden itself, the place where we were created to dwell. The message David is trying to communicate in these verses is that the provision of the Lord knows no bounds. That the Lord's desire for us is to be restored and redeemed and to dwell in the Garden. In Isaiah 51, verse 3, we read, The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. But this is not our reality, is it? We are fallen, separated from our Lord. Sin touches every ounce of our being, everything in this world. And that's what leads us to verse 4, the second movement of this psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, other translations might say the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In verse 4, David acknowledges the reality of his state. He finds himself in the deepest and darkest of valleys, and this is the state in which he often found himself. We've mentioned this several times this summer already, but David spent much of his life alone and in the wilderness. After Samuel anointed David as king of Israel, David spent years on the run from Saul. Then after Saul's death, David was crowned king, but the nation spent years in civil war. And then finally, following his affair with Bathsheba, David fled from his son Absalom. And this added up to a good portion of David's life, spent afraid and in the darkness. Literally in the darkness, but also emotionally and spiritually in the darkness. It's also worth pointing out some of the imagery in this verse. Throughout the Bible, valleys are frequently tied to danger, warfare, idolatry. Likewise, darkness is an image of separation from God. The absence of prosperity. So, through the words in verse 4, David is expressing that his life is opposite of, in direct contrast to the Eden like image that we see in verses 1 through 3. But what is the very next thing David writes? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Despite his brokenness and separation, the Lord, his shepherd, is there seeking after him we see the lord cast aside david's fear and anxiety his rod and staff protect him and gently guide him back to right paths the lord is his companion and source of comfort 5 years ago my father-in-law passed away it was pretty unexpected and prior to his passing he was in the icu for several days This was really hard for me and Elena. We had long days at the hospital making care decisions. We were also just trying to come to grips with everything that was going on. But I still vividly remember the nights we would pray earnestly for God's strength, his literal physical strength, to make it through the next day. We were exhausted, but also for emotional and spiritual strength to process everything and to guide her family. And each day, our good Lord did just that. His provision was perfectly sufficient to get us through that day. And at night, he would bless us with deep, restorative sleep. You see, this is the provision that the shepherd metaphor points to. We are sheep. We're going to wander. We're going to need him. We're going to need his help. It is our very nature. But the Lord is always pursuing us, and our good shepherd is restoring us. The beauty of Psalm 23 is that the poem doesn't end there, although that's a pretty good ending. But our shepherd does more than just pursue his wandering flock. He does more than just comfort and guide us. He elevates our status. I know that's a very hierarchical phrase. But it's what we see in the final movement of this psalm. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In these verses, the third movement, David's metaphor is that our Lord is our host. The Lord the Holy One, Yahweh himself, invites a broken and sinful wanderer to his table and opens his house to him forever. In Davidic times, Israel had an elaborate code of hospitality because there were no hotels or inns. Hosts would open their homes to travelers and offer them food, protection, and lodging. But it was not the king opening up his home, especially if someone of such lowly stature as the wanderer in this psalm. While there was an elaborate code of hospitality, there was also a well-defined social hierarchy. Even at large events like weddings or festivals, people dined at tables according to their class. But what do we see in these verses? We see the Lord, the King of kings, descend and meet the wanderer in his valley, in his lowly place, And there, in that place, he prepares a table. His enemies are encircling them. And we see the Lord say, come and eat. He's completely unfazed by the impending danger. And cast aside all fear and anxiety. And this isn't any table. It's the Lord's table. It is plentiful and abundant. In the world of fear and anxiety, the Lord brings complete peace and protection. Next the Lord anoints the wanderer's head with oil. Practically, this likely involved tending to wounds, but in Hebrew culture anointing with oil meant so much more. To be anointed meant to be set apart as holy. So our dirty, broken, lonely, fallen wanderer is set apart as holy. Even still the Lord does not stop there. He offers mercy and goodness. Throughout the Bible, mercy and goodness are attributes wholly in the domain of our Lord. Mercy is God's acts of providence by which he sustains his valuable creatures. I'm going to read that one more time. That's a lot. Mercy is God's acts of providence by which he sustains his valuable creatures. And goodness is defined as the very nature of God. So not only is he fed and declared holy... But the Lord also begins transforming the wanderer's very nature to reflect that of the Lord. And then finally, we see the Lord bring our lowly wanderer out of the valley and into his house, his dwelling place. And there our wanderer dwells, united with his heavenly Father forever. To aim this at our hearts tonight, I want to turn your attention back to 1 Peter and one of Joel's sermons from a couple months ago. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 10, Peter writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. In this life, suffering is a given. It's going to happen. There are no qualifiers or boundaries in that verse. We are going to suffer for a little while, and for some of us, that little while might feel like forever. I know that feeling. I've been there myself, and I've also walked with several of you through those through those times. But the Lord does not abandon us. No, the Lord's promise is to is to is to provide for us and to restore us and to establish us to invite us into his house to dwell with him forever the lord's promise and provision is greater than we can imagine but we are sinners covered in a veil of darkness unable to find our way and our lord the lord Meets us in that very place and redeems us. And how do we know this to be true? Through the person and work of Jesus, our Lord incarnate. In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the very Word of God, and through him all things are made. He is also the light that shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. We see the Lord become flesh. And dwell among us. Jesus was fully human. And in his humanity, he experienced the sufferings and trials and temptations of this world. But he lived without sin. Perfect and blameless. Even still, he gave his life for us. On the cross, he served the ultimate sacrifice. The perfect and blameless sheep. But in addition to being the perfect and blameless sheep, he's also our perfect shepherd. In John 10, we read Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. At the cross, he defeated death and sin once and for all. And now he's seated at the right hand of our Father, reigning supreme, and when we cry out in times of need, need, he hears our prayers as one who is shared in our life experience. His supplications to the Father on our behalf are perfect because he knows our pain, our fear, our embarrassment, our anger, our ridicule, our suffering, our loneliness, the list goes on. You see, everything we read in Psalm 23 about the care and provision of our Lord, Jesus fulfills. He loved each and every one of us, his flock, so much that he laid down his life on his own accord. Because of his sacrifice, That garden image in Psalm 23, 1 through 3 can become our reality. Because of his sacrifice, the Lord as our host for eternity can become our reality. Because of his sacrifice, full and final redemption and restoration is available to us. And that's what brings us to the table tonight. Pray with me. Dear God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, open our eyes to see your hand at work in the world about us. Deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. Let the grace of this Holy Communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ that we may worthily serve the world in his name. Risen Lord, be known to us in the breaking of the bread. Accept these prayers and praises, Father, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, your church gives honor, glory, and worship from generation to generation. Amen.